The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, having had small sats to start off with, we now move on to CubeSats for our, our next uh, couple of talks. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Andrew Kalman. Uh, uh, Andrew is a uh, Pumpkins president and CTO and has technical and managerial responsibility for Pumpkins two main business units, Pico Satellite Architectures, Component Design and Manufacturing, and the Salvo real-time operating system. Uh, Dr. Kalman's efforts at creating innovative, modular, reliable, low-cost and feature-laden software and hardware products have resulted in Pumpkins commercial products being utilized worldwide in a variety of products, from CubeSat Pico satellites to unmanned and aerial vehicles to locomotives to medical devices. Uh, Dr. Kalman's areas of expertise include digital analog electronics, PCB design, embedded hardware software co-design, and design for manufacturability. Uh, he holds several patents and is also a consulting professor at Stanford University. So I'll hand over to uh, Dr. Kalman for his next talk. So I'd just like to thank everyone, Michelle, Charles, Michael, and Sergio, and the rest of KISS for having me. Um, as a, a little matter of background, um, I've been at this uh, CubeSat stuff since about 2000, when um, I was uh, helping out at Stanford with Professor Bob Twiggs, who's one of the originators of the CubeSat standard. He kind of had the idea of how to make a small satellite that we would basically bring to a FedEx counter, pay FedEx, and the next thing you know, it would be on orbit. And if it wasn't on orbit, FedEx would give you your money back for failure to deliver. <laughs> but anyway, the problem that he had was that each year, uh, Stanford runs on a quarter system, each year, the students would come in in the fall quarter, look at what the students had done in the past, say, ah, we don't want to do it that way, we want to do it our way. And they would get to a certain point, but not really reach critical mass in terms of having something ready for flight at a later date. And so he and I, I, I was helping to uh, very peripherally teach a class that he was teaching. Um, and uh, uh, he lamented that he just didn't have quite all these components that he wanted to be able to take the students to, to a, a final resolution, to actually deliver a, a CubeSat. And so he sort of cajoled and persuaded me to put together eventually a proposal. Um, I was well qualified to do this because um, I had, uh, I was currently, well at that time I was, uh, I had left my first company, but at my first company I had gained a lot of uh, expertise in terms of building uh, consumer products. Uh, I knew electronics, I knew software, I knew structures, etc. Uh, and to make a long story short, we put together this thing called NPB1, New Product Brief 1, uh, which was a concept for a kit to build CubeSats. And we floated that on the internet in, I think it was uh, August, no, probably November, November of 2000. And we just thought, you know, the world was going to beat a path to our door. And let me tell you, the silence was deafening. <laughs> Nothing happened for maybe a year, and then occasionally we'd get a ping from a, a consultant who was interested in CubeSats, what is this stuff, but still nothing really happening. And then in about August of 2003, uh, we got a ping from NASDA, which is now JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Corporation, and they said they wanted to buy one. And our response was, well, that was almost two and a half years ago. Things have changed very quickly within this market, embedded computing and all that. Uh, we need to reassess our proposal and get back to you. So my partner, who's still my partner at, at Pumpkin, Adam Reef, he's our chief mechanical designer. We sort of did a, a month-long retreat. Uh, we pretty much threw out everything we had done, except for the fact that our structure was made of sheet metal. 
Um, and we came back to JAXA and we said, okay, here's our current proposal and you have to buy three. And we thought we were really slick. We said, and they're going to be $2,500 a piece. And immediately the check, you know, wire showed up the next day. So sure, that was in, let's say, August or September of 2003. And on December 31st, 2003, we shipped them three units. And that was the beginning of our foray into, uh, into uh, doing uh, very small satellites. So what I'd like to focus on today is a couple items. I'm going to talk about uh, CubeSats and, and these, these Pico satellites or nanosatellites, depending on where you're coming from, how you want to call them. I want to give you an introduction and some overview of those. Um, this, that's sort of more an engineering talk, I'll, I'll, I'll be frank. Uh, I think some of the speakers who are going to follow me are going to be focusing more on the science. I, I do tend to focus more on the engineering. I'm also going to be talking about um, what it means to be a designer in this space and the lessons that I've learned and I hope that to pass on to others in terms of addressing how one builds these satellites and good practices and all that. Um, we're going to be channeling Jonathan Ive, who is Apple's uh, chief designer. Um, I gave a talk where I quoted a lot of the things that he was saying about design, and I'm going to try to get across to you why I think that listening to someone from Apple, which is clearly a different market than what we're talking about, actually has uh, relevance in this discussion. And then in the end, I'd like to talk about some of the interesting areas that I think are, are, are coming up in the CubeSat realm and, and hold a lot of promise for greater uh, mission capabilities. All right. Uh, let me use this guy here. Okay, so quick, let's just do a first overview of, of CubeSats. Um, basically, Bob Twiggs at Stanford had proposed the notion of uh, this small satellite. It was originally in a, uh, like a plexiglass box that was meant to hold Beanie Babies that he bought at Tap Plastics. So this sort of set the initial size of a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter thing. I think initially it was probably 4 by 4 by 4 inches. Um, and it's close, but not the same as 10 by 10 centimeters. Um, uh, over at Cal Poly, Professor Puxari then formalized how this would actually be deployed into space. So this CubeSat would go into this P-Pod. This is essentially a jack-in-the-box, a square-walled box with a door that pops open and a big spring in the back and just kicks the CubeSats out. And the P-Pod was designed to handle three of these at a time. Um, the, the, the standard is called the CubeSat Design Standard, the CDS. It's managed by Cal Poly. It uh, used to be a few pages, maybe now it's a few tens of pages, but it's still pretty short, frankly. Um, the, 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 the critical element is basically that we're doing this keep it simple, stupid kind of mentality, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters, and really very few additional requirements that you need to meet in order to satisfy their willingness to put one of your CubeSats in one of their P-Pods. Um, and uh, important to note that while the standard essentially says that it's 100 by 100 millimeters, there's actually a little bit more room because normal to each face, you're allowed six and a half millimeters of additional uh, volume. So realistically, the largest aperture you can have, et cetera, is 113 millimeters. So sometimes you might see 100 millimeters. Sometimes you might see people pushing it a little bit more. This is why they're able to do that. So it's a very simple standard. Um, and uh, by being simple, it's managed to keep the cost relatively low. Now, let's talk a little bit about the generations as I see these. Um, the very first CubeSats were essentially modern Sputniks. Uh, my company had a customer in Colombia, Universidad Sergio Arboleda. It's a private university that's in Bogota. They had a crew of about nine people who had essentially no previous space experience. Um, they bought one of our kits uh, about, uh, about two years after they purchased it. They, they, well, actually, I got a frantic call from Cal Poly saying, uh, 
Sergio Arboledo's CubeSats here and it has some issues. So I went down there and I took a look at it and I thought, oh boy, that doesn't look good. First of all, I saw there was a little bit of damage in the corner that shouldn't be there. But the other thing is there were no solar cells on it. Going, what is going on here? I see panels that are made to handle solar cells, but there were actually no solar cells on them. And this was getting ready to go. So I eventually learned that there were some ITAR issues. There were, the State Department found out that people were talking to the Colombians without the proper paperwork in place, et cetera. The Colombians were told they couldn't enter the U.S. for two years, but no one told them they couldn't send their satellite in the U.S. And so they did something very, very smart. They realized they had a launch date and they had to do something to make their satellite work. So what they did is they actually stripped every vestige of solar cells out of their satellite, packed it with extra batteries, made their launch date. I resolved that little damage issue that was there. Um, and they launched. And they operated for 34 days as a modern Sputnik. Uh, it was a two-directional comms, but I don't think the uplink ever worked, but the downlink did work. It beaconed for 34 days and the batteries died. To me, that was a very object lesson in taking advantage of this very simple design mentality and actually getting something to work. Not, uh, you know, re-scoping it so that there's additional things to make, but instead just keeping to that very original idea, very simple, uh, essentially a modern Sputnik. And to this day, those guys are like heroes in Columbia because that was Columbia's first satellite. Now they're working on additional satellites. Um, so there were several satellites along those lines. Um, the second generation I consider to be the one that demonstrated that the 3U CubeSat has utility. Now, I mentioned in the previous slide that the Peapod can handle up to three CubeSats, but it can also handle one CubeSat that's three times as long. So this is what we call three U's, and especially DOD um, has really glommed on to the notion that the three U is probably the, the, the one uh, form factor within the standard CubeSat uh, specification that is, in fact, useful. So as an example, in December of 2010, SpaceX uh, put up the Falcon 9. There were six Peapods on that Falcon 9. There were, in fact, eight CubeSats in those six Peapods. There were four CubeSats that were one and a half U in size. That was from uh, Los Alamos. There were two CubeSats from uh, Naval Research Lab. There was one CubeSat from the Army. That was SNBC-1. And there was one uh, CubeSat from Northrop Grumman. That was the only private one on board. All six functioned. Uh, it was a fairly, as you recall, this was a uh, test mission to do ISS resupply, so the, the, um, the, uh, the orbit was pretty low. They all came down within one to three weeks or so. But nonetheless, they all worked, uh, and the price of all of those was pretty reasonable. I would say that realistically you were looking at, let's just say round numbers, one to two million per satellite, plus uh, SpaceX has announced I think their pricing is 397K for the launch itself. So. 1.3K, 2.3K, 2.3 million kind of pricing for those. So we now sort of establish that the 3U is, is a very uh, useful package. Oh, I feel that we're currently in the third generation. We're seeing a lot more power available on the CubeSats. We're seeing uh, attitude control, uh, typically uh, in determination, typically in terms of uh, reaction wheels and, uh, magnetic, uh, and magnetometers, but we're beginning to see some other uh, approaches as well, and propulsion. Propulsion is interesting not only for attitude control but also orbit uh, changes and deorbiting as well. Uh, and then I think the fourth generation will essentially be constellations. Okay, so what are some of the challenges in CubeSat design? Um, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges is you're trying to pack a whole lot of stuff into a small space. 
Unlike, say, if you were putting together a microsat where you essentially can buy a, an individual standalone model, bolt module, bolt it to the, the wall of the CubeSat, run some harnesses to it, you don't have that freedom when you're doing CubeSats. They're simply too small. You have a much higher level of integration. And so that tends to complicate things rather than simplify them. You can have a you can very quickly run into volume uh, problems. You, you have this much stuff that you need to put in a CubeSat, and in their current form factor, they're not going to fit. So you have to get very um, imaginative as to how you're going to be doing that. Um, also, the power has been pretty brutal. Um, in the first generation, um, a 1U CubeSat, you could say, is roughly a 1-watt satellite. 3U CubeSats might have been up to about, let's say, 10 watts. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but 10 watts still puts you below the power envelope for doing a variety of, say, computational elements that are becoming now available. But when we get to that, that December 10 launch, uh, December 2010 launch, all of a sudden we have CubeSats that have over 50 watts of on-orbit average power. Uh, that's a big change, and it's a really an enabling change. As an example, uh, from the very beginning when we designed the CubeSat kit, one of the reasons why we chose sheet metal is because it allowed us to have a very thin wall thickness. So 100 by 100 millimeters, I wanted to run PC-104 inside that. PC-104 is 90 by 96 millimeters. So I've got four millimeters to play with between the outside dimension of my PC-104, which is essentially a PC in a different form factor, and the outside dimension of the CubeSat as a whole. Four millimeters, I've got to split that two ways because there's a wall on the other side. That's two millimeters. I need tolerance as well. Now I'm down to, let's say, one and a half millimeters. One and a half millimeters is 60 thousandths wall thickness. That's an eminently doable in sheet metal. But I'm not going to be able to cut a 60,000th wall that's this long with any machine tool out there today, plunging in, coming in. So we approach that as saying, hey, we really want to be able to see essentially PCs fly in space. And PC-104 is a great form factor to do that. Now, nowadays, that has changed a lot. You've seen these uh, Raspberry Pis. You've seen Beagle Boards. You've seen Android phones. The, the, uh, the, the cornucopia of uh, Linux-type processors has expanded substantially since what was available back in 2000 or so. But PC-104 still has a lot of arguments going for it. Uh, it's uh, essentially trivial to develop your entire satellite on a desktop with a bunch of Linux machines, whatever, and then essentially just take your software and put it in the boot of a PC-104 and you're ready to fly. So what I was getting, though, though there is that PC-104, up until recently, was at least 10 watts minimum uh, power requirement to run any sort of decent processor. Um, there were some smaller processors that got declocked to lower power levels. But nowadays, with something like an Atom, you're looking at a 1.6 gig Atom that runs at 5 watts. A very reasonable power footprint, um, but that does require this, this, this greater available power that is now coming online. Um, another interesting problem in dealing with uh, CubeSats, uh, in fact, let me jump to this and I'll come back. This is the number, if, if you want to take any number away from dealing with CubeSats, I want you to remember this number. Apple's going to ship more than 100 million iPhones this year. They shipped about 60 million last year. In my opinion, the most interesting thing about CubeSats is that it is a platform that has allowed us to take advantage of developments in consumer technology unlike any other. Leo Orbit is actually not that rough. The temperatures are pretty reasonable. You don't have huge uh, radiation concerns. You, we want, in the, in the, in the uh, CubeSat community, we want to take advantage of commercial technologies as much as possible. And let me tell you, whoever builds the parts for the iPhone must be really, really, really good in quality, much better than probably any space uh, 
uh, uh, anyone who provides in, uh, components of the space thing, because $100 million a year, the defect rate is vanishingly small. We want to take advantage of these technologies as much as we can. The trouble is, sometimes you can't take advantage of that in every way. As an example, I mean, oh, there's a slide later, there's a program uh, at uh, NASA Ames to fly an Android phone. In fact, it's the first one, the Google, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Nexus S, right? There's a Nexus One, whichever one the first of the Google phones is. Um, and their, their concept was, hey, let's take a, a Google phone with Android in it. Let's, it's got all, all sorts of things we want. It's got a camera. It's got rate sensors. It's got a magnetometer. It's got all these features inside it. And let's turn that into a brains of a, of a satellite. I think it's a great idea because it's dirt cheap and it's got all this capability. It's probably pretty reliable. The problem is that it's physically just a little bit too big to stick into a CubeSat in a normal manner. And what they ended up having to do is stick the phone in the CubeSat in a, on the diagonal. And as soon as you do the diagonal, oh man, the packaging just gets brutal because you don't have the long dimensions that you'd like to play with. But they did actually come up with a design. We worked with them um, where they are going to be flying this phone with, again, only a primary battery, just a whole bunch of lithium-ion cells that are pre-charged. And it'll have a lifetime of uh, on the order of several days or something like that. Um, and yet they're able to. Uh, pull that off at very low cost, because the, the phone itself is worth, what, maybe $500 at most. Um, and, um, and yet, there are some technologies that we can't leverage for our CubeSats because they don't exist in the consumer realm. So one example is solar cells. Um, so thinking, we want to leverage these low-cost technologies. They're very reliable. They're very cheap. They also deprecate very quickly. You take advantage of the fact that a new one comes along, it's got better features, it's got more memory, whatever. But there are also some areas that you can't really do that. As an example is space-grade solar cells with reasonable efficiencies, say above 28% or so. They're available from not very many suppliers, and they don't come in very many different form factors. So you play this interesting balancing game of trying to find components that have a physical dimensionality to them that work well in CubeSats, and at the same time trying to get something that is at a very high volume so that you can, uh, you can leverage the low price, the high reliability, et cetera. Um, another thing that's a, an interesting challenge in CubeSats is that, generally speaking, the CubeSat folks are not very rich. Michael, I look at you, and I know all the programs you've been trying to do. I know that you know, $60 million <laughs> would change your life forever. Even a million dollars would change things dramatically. But the limited budgets in the CubeSat realm are generally a lot, lot smaller than that. And so what, we, what I see, certainly, if I wear my pumpkin hat because I want to sell things sometimes, is that uh, the limited budgets do mean the decisions that you make early on can have long-reaching uh, implications. You might decide to build a CubeSat one way, and you find out fairly late on that the penalty that you're going to pay is that you have an enormous number of fasteners, for example. And the fasteners weigh half a kilo in a CubeSat that's going to weigh four kilos. Well, that's probably not a, a good way to do it, but you're so vested in that design that it's too late to change it. Uh, and lastly, we should point out that uh, there are certainly some who view CubeSats as space debris. They're going up. They're causing some issues. They're uh, right around, say, the, the orbits of the ISS. We don't want one of these things crashing into it. So there is a perception that CubeSats might actually be space debris. The, the, the response of the community then is says, oh, sure, we're space debris, and we'll show you that either we will naturally deorbit within a short time period, or we'll even put a thruster on board so that we do deorbit within a short time period. So the, the community is very responsive to these kinds of things. Uh, but you have to have a good story. Um, just briefly touching on build versus buy, 
Um, there are plenty of places that are capable of building something that's a CubeSat. There are others that perhaps are not. Uh, somewhere in the middle, people will build some, uh, build some components and buy the others. Um, I'd like to just touch on this right here. Um, and this is an interesting problem that we on the commercial side have. You know, when you're at a university, you have free labor, et cetera. It is rather difficult to compete against this when you say you have a, a group of students who feel, hey, we can build this thing uh, and it'll get done in a quick time. The problem that we have as a, as a, as a, as a, as a community of, of, of commercial suppliers is that this tends to keep our market space down. It, it prevents us from having a larger market. And what's interesting is that if you think about, say, uh, Apple and the iPhones and all that, in this community, we, we expect that kind of quality, that kind of performance, that kind of value. And yet, we are in a market that is involved in, say, maybe, maybe the building of 50 to 100 CubeSats a year, not 100 million units. So there's a bit of a disconnect there between what one can expect from the people who are supplying this, this market directly and uh, what's available in terms of the commercial space. And of course, the challenge there from your standpoint in terms of building is to try to uh, match as many of those different parts as possible, use as many of the consumer parts as possible, but where it's not possible, perhaps you know, go to a, one of the vendors who sell this stuff. Uh, and I should also point out that Artar is pretty brutal. Um, I'm in a situation where my company is US-based. I'm a US person, therefore I'm heavily constrained by ITAR. My, my foreign competitors are not. They make sure that they stay away from any sort of US source materials. They therefore have potentially a larger market share or whatever. So this hurts us in the US, hoping that uh, the, the recent suggested changes to the USML will improve our situation there. Um, again, I mentioned earlier that uh, the uh, CubeSats are pretty small, uh, volume constrained. Um, it's very interesting that uh, CubeSat design is highly interdisciplinary. Um, you really have to consider the entire system at all times, uh, not just individual components. Um, uh, if you don't, very quickly, some issues will bite you. I can think of several uh, pro programs that are ongoing right now where they haven't addressed all the issues, and as a result, they can have some, uh, some problems. I'll just pick up one very minor one. On a CubeSat, you have, according to the standard, you have this thing called the access port. And the access port is a port that is to be open through the Peapod launcher so that uh, let's say if your, uh, if your CubeSat is integrated in January, but you're only going to launch in, say, March or April, um, the overall standard would like it to be possible that, say, two months into sitting inside a CubeSat, you'd like to be able to jack in and perhaps recharge your batteries or whatever. So on the Peapod, the thing that this goes into, there are a couple of doors that can be removed with screws, and you can see that. Uh, all fine and dandy, there's, in fact, basically three areas where you can have a, a, an access port, the bottom, the middle, and the top. Once you add deployable panels in an effort to have more power on board, um, all of a sudden the panel has to carry that design detail with it as well. Still not a huge problem until you say, oh, but I want lots and lots of solar cells on my panels. Well, now what happens? Well, this is a case of a six-cell panel, and there is, in fact, enough room to accommodate an end-based uh, access panel there. If I go to seven, it gets really hard, and if I go to eight, it's impossible. Okay, so, well, okay, well, I only, only have an access panel on one side. How about if I do eights on all the other ones and sevens on this side? That's very reasonable, but your cost just went up because now you're making two different products. You're making an eight-cell panel and a seven-cell panel. Um, and your uh, electrical power system may not actually be that happy with that 
uh, your system might be tied to the notion that all of the, the string lengths should be roughly equivalent, and all of a sudden if you have an 8 and a 7, you might act not even be able to get power from this if you do a typical diode oaring, and you're diode oaring an 8 panel with a 7 panel, clearly you're not going to get any power. So the, 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 the flow through is pretty extreme in these small satellites, and you've got to, uh, from a designer's perspective, you have to continually review all these kinds of incremental changes to make sure that they're not blowing up in some other place. As an example, uh, there's a, there was a bus program called Colony 1, which was driven by the NRO. Pumpkin built the satellites for that. This was uh, basically a one and a half page requirement specification that they gave us. Uh, we had quite a bit of leeway uh, to, to design around. This is sort of a progression of Colony 1 designs. Uh, ultimately, they just wanted one thing. They wanted one and a half liters of payload volume up here with the various other uh, capabilities of the bus. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, uh, the whole thing was done in about seven weeks, I think. Um, uh, two of these have flown so far. Um, if we had had more time, we certainly would do it differently. And in fact, we have a successor bus to this that has a lot of new uh, uh, functions. Um, but ultimately, um, what I thought was interesting from this entire process is to see how interdependent all these different components are. Uh, and in the end, I think part of our success there was that ultimately the bus was still relatively simple. It was not complex. There was not very much... Uh, feature creep going on there, and we were only addressing a bus, not the, uh, the total mission. Okay, uh, real quick, um, very important in this day and age, uh, you're working in 3D CAD systems, your CAD has to be perfect in every single way. Uh, I just want to touch on these two things down here. 3D printing has become very popular in the past few years. Everybody has a Stratasys or a U-Print or whatever. Um, this is a great resource to have. I, I strongly recommend any of you who don't have one, either try to get one in-house or use the printing services. And another very interesting and perhaps not completely obvious benefit from modeling absolutely everything is scale independence. And what I mean by that is I can zoom into any part of this model and verify that, in fact, I've got you know, two thousandths of an inch clearance in some area, which I could not do any other way. And in fact, I can even illustrate it that, well, that way as well, whereas in our studio, there's no way I'm going to get any decent pictures of those kind of close tolerances. So uh, definitely uh, expect to be able, expect to have to invest heavily in your, your engineering team, your modeling team, in order to uh, make sure that all of this stuff works together. On a larger scale, in a you know, satellite that's this big, this is much less important. I mean, you certainly will use modeling for, for analysis and stuff like that, but on a smaller scale, this is absolutely mandatory. Uh, quality matters. Uh, I'm just going to touch on this notion that I think that within... And this is beginning to tie, and I, I, should, I should preface it by this. We design everything at Pumpkin with the notion that we're going to build 1,000 of these things. I don't want to be building one or 10. Our minimum build these days is 25. Something goes out, 25 come back. It's not worth doing less than that. Um, and I would like to see something goes out and 100 come back, and then somebody shows up and buys 100 or 1,000 or whatever. Um, if, we, if we channel Apple's design methodology or whatever, and I'm not a huge Apple fanboy, but I do, I do respect some of their design decisions, I think it's very important to note that um, in order to have good quality, you have to have good design. And what this means is that you're iterating many, many times over, over a long time period to reach these kind of uh, high, you know, well thought out designs that fundamentally lead to quality. Uh, I have some pictures here. This is, for example, one of the, this is a colony bus. This is number eight, I guess. Uh, and this is a colony bus inside a, uh, inside a P-pod that has just gone through shake testing. You can just see the, uh, the long panels on the sides. Here's that access port again. Um, there were absolutely no changes made to this bus 
from the day we said go when the CAD was finished to when it was delivered to the customer. Zero, none. Everything was done in CAD land and it turned out to be, have been done correctly. And it was all a function of that good design. And Adam and I had many arguments over many different features, uh, but in the end we all settled that we felt that this was a, an adequate and correct way to do it, and in fact it, it worked out well. So very heavy feature on design, and I tend to think of myself first and foremost as a designer. And the challenges that are, that are uh, presented by the CubeSat form factor continue to be really quite interesting to me. A um, little bit of talk about hardware and software. I'll give you a little story first. Um, when we started, the, the, the CubeSat kit was designed around one processor, an, a TI processor called the MSP430. It's a very nice processor, very nice uh, linear orthogonal architecture, um, very good on power, nice compilers and all that sort of thing. But I recognized that that was the height of arrogance for me to come in and, and meet with potential customers and tell them, look, you want to fly a CubeSat, you better learn to use this processor. That's not the right way to do it. Frankly, I think that in many cases, the largest single piece of IP that CubeSat teams have is their software. And their software runs on some processor, and it's probably not on MSP430. So the approach that we took uh, on our fourth generation was we were going to decouple the processor dependence of the architecture from the rest of the system. And as an example, when we did that Colony 1 program with the NRO, when we first met, I said, hey, what is the processor you want to fly? Yeah, I should stop pointing this at you guys. And they said, oh, well, we have a bunch of uh, 8051s that have been in storage for like 20 years. And each time we fly a mission, we take two of them out, we destructively test one, and the other one is the one that flies. I said, 8051s, really? Okay. All right, find me a modern 8051 you want to fly. And I worked with them, and we identified a particular 8051 from Silicon Labs. This is the C8051F120. Um, and at that point, we had the ability to essentially have pluggable processors, kind of like a, there's a socket on a motherboard. We could plug different processors into that socket and then flow through the entire bus. So we designed that processor with the, their help. Uh, we spun the processor boards. The boards came in. I shipped a CubeSat kit to them uh, probably on a Friday afternoon. It arrived Monday morning. And by Monday at noon, they were running their entire code base. that They had never even seen our hardware before. So to me, I think it's very important it's, to me, it's always software that causes the schedule slips. Hardware, once your hardware is stable, you can just crank it out. And your only problem is finding the parts. And your parts may go obsolete very quickly, and then you're in big trouble. So you've got to buy big reels of parts and you know, keep them in storage. But software, software slips and all that, I, I, I can't deal with that. I don't like that. Um, and I want to make it as easy as possible for the software elements to make their way into the satellite. So to, 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 to me, I think it was very important that if you have a, an existing software uh, code base, you need to be able to place that into a CubeSat with minimal effort. If it's Linux, it means you're going to be running on PC-104 or something like that. Um, but I'll point out that there are subtle issues, say, if you go to Linux. For example, there's a class of cameras, the Gig-E-Vision Gig, Gig cameras. Those are gigabit uh, Ethernet kind of link cameras. Um, Gig-E-Vision is not an open standard. And I don't think this has changed. I don't think there's any GigiVision drivers outside of Red Hat and CentOS. So if you want to fly one of those cameras, you have to have a Linux distribution that's based on uh, Red Hat or CentOS. You can't, for example, fly Debian. These are all issues that you've got to resolve fairly early on, um, and they will flow down to your hardware. The nice thing about it is that now with its sufficient power, et cetera, pretty much the whole world of Linux computing is available now in in uh, CubeSats, and you should be able to come up with a, um, 
uh, a platform that you will be able to fly. Um, again, just touching on this business of hardware obsolescence, uh, currently there is one part in the CubeSat architecture that is in fact obsolete. Uh, I think we have a, a reel of about 5,000 of them, and there's only one per CubeSat right now. I don't particularly feel like changing the design, so they will last for a while longer. But keep in mind that in terms of hardware design, it is very reasonable to think that what you design today will not be available two, three years from now, whether it's a phone, whether it's a particular memory chip or whatever. Uh, so this is, you have to be very sensitive to this. Either build them all now or stockpile them all now or be prepared to change your design. Um, okay. Um, so why is it that CubeSats drive tech innovation within the, the, the satellite community? Um, well, the thing that I really like about them is that you have very short development time frames, which means you have to ride the development wave. Uh, as an example, you know, ferroelectric RAM is coming. It seems to be the, the savior for lots of our problems. Um, in, in the case of CubeSats, um, because we are expected to be in integrating new tech very quickly, because new tech is usually what is pretty cheap and it's available, um, this allows the CubeSat uh, community to take advantage of these things in ways that 5, 10, 15 year programs simply cannot do. Uh, we use mass produced components. Um, I pay no attention to lists of approved uh, space materials or anything. Oh, I shouldn't say materials. Materials is important. But components. Um, I use what uh, we find uh, or we think is going to work well, um, and we have not been proven wrong yet. Um, but that's really because LEO is a relatively benign orbit. It's not that bad. Um, obviously, you, you, take some, you take some effort to make sure that you have a, a single event upset kind of mitigation strategies and all that. But there is no demonstrated need for RADHARD in LEO at this point. Everyone wants RADHARD, everyone would like that, especially if we go uh, interplanetary or whatever, we're going to need it. But at this point, uh, doing a kind of LEO satellite or even LEO constellation is capable of running these kind of components. Um, um, also, it's interesting to note, and I think some, one of our next speakers will talk about this, the fact that the CubeSats are relatively low cost means that a launch failure or even another failure in a satellite is not a uh, is not a terrible thing. It means that you can probably rebuild the satellite or build another one relatively quickly and get it up there on orbit. Uh, and I mentioned the, the notion of dynamic responses to uh, problems. So let me talk a little bit about the trends in the hot topics. By the way, this down here is the picture of that phone. You see it's sitting diagonally inside a 1U CubeSat, a stack of batteries around it. I think at the bottom there's like a, uh, a radio and such. But a very quick uh, development cycle to get this thing into a, a CubeSat. That's it being balloon tested. And it will fly in August, I believe. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about Earth imaging. DARPA had a call just recently uh, called CME. Uh, it was a military application for Earth imaging. There's a lot of space weather. Uh, talking about Android in particular because it's such an open architecture and because the phones have so many of the same components we would expect to have in a CubeSat. Uh, Power is going up. This is a picture of one of our 56 watt arrays. Uh, faster communications. Um, there was a discussion about communications before. Uh, you know, it used to be we're talking 1,200 bits per second, then 9,600 bits per second. We're, uh, there are two CubeSats right now that are flying about one and a half megabits. And I think within a few years, we'll see 10 megabits as a fairly standard, 10 megabits in S band as a fairly standard comm link for uh, CubeSats. Uh, propulsion is coming. But again, I think that. Uh, from my perspective, I'm not so much interested in what is the cool science experiment. I'm looking for what is the killer app. Because again, I'm looking for those large volumes of, of, of units that are built, sort of a tr production train 
that's coming along and people are just taking one off the, the, off the line, throwing their, their, uh, their science payload or their commercial payload into it and flying it. Okay, so that's kind of the first half of my talk. Um, and I'm not going to talk, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, being a CubeSat designer. I think this tends to generate some interest as well. Uh, so these quotes in blue are from Jonathan Ive. He's, the, he's Apple's chief uh, designer. Um, I've never met him or anything, but I do like the way he thinks about a couple of things. Um, Silicon Valley is very interesting, and we can extend that down to here as well, the, 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 the aerospace industrial base as well. Um, what I want to point out here is that we have a very neat opportunity to take advantage of the fact that the manufacturing that still exists in this country is generally highly specialized. All the generic manufacturing is gone. But you've got guys who can do very interesting and, uh, things and are generally open to doing things in a, in a new way. And so we've actually taken a lot of advantage of this at Pumpkin in the, in, in, up in Silicon Valley. We've been looking at different ways of, of, of uh, applying uh, manufacturing processes to existing manufacturing processes to come up with new products. And that has served us very well. I'm very happy about that. Um, of course, that doesn't mean you need to make everything in the U.S., although ITAR kind of forces you to do that anyway. Um, but realistically, if you're ordering PCBs, you don't know if they're coming out of Chicago, unless you ask, uh, or they're coming out of, say, Taiwan or China. Um, and this is just sort of an exhortation to young designers. Everybody's going to tell you you're, you're stupid, you don't know what you're doing, but you just got to keep working through all those failed designs and eventually get to something that works. How am I on time? Okay. Uh, on the design process, um, I do want to focus on the notion that, and again, remember, this is because CubeSats are so small and you're forced into this very small product volume. You really have to iterate many, many times in order to get this stuff to work if for no other reason, uh, stuff to fit if for no other reason. Um, I see a lot of great CAD designs, uh, but I think that there perhaps is sometimes a lack of a connection to what can actually be manufactured. I can think specifically of an absolutely gorgeous control moment gyro-based system, uh, just beautiful CAD with scale invariance, because no one could make the motors that they needed at the scale they needed to make them. So we have to be sometimes a little bit realistic about that. Uh, similarly, with 3D printing, uh, it's very interesting. I saw some 3D printed stuff out there in the lab as well. Um, to do validation of what you're doing um, it helps. It, it, it really uh, in, in, uh, speeds up the design cycle, et cetera. Uh, and of course, same goes when you're doing electronics. Um, I think that one thing that I see is, is often missing within young designers is they don't really have a feel for what is, 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 is what the physicality of it all is. For example, I was working with a designer on Friday, I think, and I asked him if he had ever actually tapped a hole. He never had. So he had no feel for what it means to be tapping absolutely ridiculously small number one screws and things like that in 7075 has been hard anodized. It's not going to happen. So you know, I encourage all of you, who are especially at the student level, to get out there and get your hands dirty in the shop and all that to understand uh, some of this kind of stuff so that when you do come up with a design, in your design reviews, people don't shoot you down saying, you're, you're, you know, that's nuts, that's not going to work, but there is another way. Uh, and similarly, you know, operate a mill and all that stuff. By the way, I, I was technically double E at Stanford, but I spent all my time in the ME shop. I just loved it. Um, so that sort of gave me this, this broader perspective of circuitry and structures and all that. Um, as a designer, especially within the relatively short time frames that we talk about in CubeSat missions, most missions, I think I touch on it later, 
you know, 12 to 18 months from start to delivering a satellite to, say, NASA, who then has six more months sitting on the pad before it actually launches through Ilana, you've got to move very quickly. You've got to be willing to go in different directions, uh, try different uh, technologies, et cetera. I'm, I'm, with, that, with that intern that I'm talking about there, I think we've, as part of a redesign, we've changed materials and gear sizes three or four times in about a week. Uh, however, I'm very happy with what it converged on eventually. Um, on the other hand, I've got to say there are some things that uh, I certainly have found just take a very long time to resolve properly. Uh, it may be because the particular technology that's out there isn't right. It may be that the process doesn't quite give you the quality you want, etc. Um, so sometimes one can't solve that quickly. Um, uh, it's very important that if you have compromised your design, you understand why and you can talk about that. It may be due to cost, it may be due to schedule, it could be due to a lot of things. But it's very important to be able to communicate that to the rest of the team. Um, and then here, th this is sort of this uh, issue of if you're actually building something, whether you're, you're, you're putting complex curves on a part or you're picking uh, cutter paths that match American fractional end mill sizes, um, this comes from experience, certainly, but it, it drives cost. Um, and uh, in many cases, I think we, I see a lot of designs initially that are much more expensive than they need to be, um, and it behooves the designer to go out there and perhaps talk to the, the guy who's going to be making those parts to understand why this part is crazy expensive, um, but a few small changes would, 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 would uh, ameliorate the cost problem. Interestingly, though, I've talked about 3D printing, but there are also companies like uh, First Cut, which is actually the CNC arm of... Proto Mold, which does plastic molding, uh, First Cut doesn't seem to care too much about what you design into your parts. I've seen crazy parts, and the prices are pretty reasonable, and they show up in three days. So this may be going away, uh, at least on the, the quantity one kind of uh, issue. Uh, again, of course, my focus is on quantity hundreds and stuff like that, and I have to keep costs down. Um, on goals, uh, goals are very simple. Design and make something better product. Right. If it's not better than what my competition is doing, it's not going out the door. This is an example of uh, the final configuration of the way the 56-watt array flew uh, back in December. And what this was showing is the customer came along and said, wow, due to aerodynamic issues, we can't actually put all of the cells on one side. We're going to have a CG versus CP problem. And so in a very rapid uh, process, we split the array into two pieces, uh, fit them up here, um, still fit within the envelope that is the, the P-Pod. All of these guys stack along with a panel on the side to only six and a half millimeters of overall thickness. Um, and I was very happy with the way that turned out. Okay, on the working environment, um, I love this quote. Committees just don't work, and it's not about price, schedule, or bizarre marketing goal to appear different. They are corporate goals with scant regard for people who use the product. This is a, this is a consumer designer talking, um, but I do believe that this, uh, there's a lot of truth to this. Um, I, I think that in terms of uh, moving forward and packing more capability into CubeSats and all that, it's, it, it, it all comes back to this notion of what is a good design. Um, compromise as little as possible. Uh, try to have as much of a, of a, of a bigger picture view uh, as you move forward. Now, this is obviously a challenge in that many of you will have science experiments that have rap wildly diverging requirements. Um, and uh, I do my best to satisfy as many people as possible. I can't do it all with, with the, the, the products we have, mainly because of the low volume. 
If someone has this fantastic requirement um, that requires that my CubeSat uh, fold out into a soccer ball size or something like that, that's fantastic. But if you're only coming to me for one of those, there's a limit to how much effort I'm going to be putting to designing that. So the, the, the advantage that we see, uh, for example, within the CubeSat realm is this constrained packaging. I guess you could take an analogy to the uh, cell phones. You guys remember cell phones from the 80s and 90s? They were, you know, like this big. They looked like a military walkie-talkie, some giant thing. Well, our hands haven't changed, our, our heads haven't changed, and yet the thing is now the size of an iPhone or something. Um, I think that to, to uh, leverage the success of the CubeSat form factor as much as possible, if you can, you should try to develop a, a payload which uh, you know, fits that, that form factor as much as possible. But I recognize that's not always the case. Uh, after all, you are limited to a pure optical... Uh, uh, aperture of 113 millimeters. That may not be acceptable for some missions. Uh, that's why there are new standards being proposed, like the 6U CubeSat, which is considerably larger. Um, but the 6U CubeSat, the idea behind it is, hey, we'll still use all the components and all that, that market leverage that we have on the smaller CubeSats, but we'll simply put it in a larger box. We'll pay more to launch it, but we'll have a lot more design flexibility. Um, consumers want... This is the challenge that I face every day. Can I come up with something that is good enough for what you guys are looking for uh, to make sense? Um, there may be highly specialized, completely different architectures that, that make sense for um, one mission or maybe a constellation of missions. I might get locked out of that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I try to focus on, on uh, driving this in a sense from input from the customers, but at the same time also trying to look forward um, and develop the technologies and the capabilities that will um, allow them to integrate these future uh, uh, payloads. Um, and on the working environment, uh, well, I, oh, sorry, I've gone backwards there. All right. Um, I want to touch on one thing here on experience. I always remember this one story about, and I don't know if it's true, it could be apocryphal, but the notion was this supposedly happened at GM in like the 80s, and some young intern is there, and he wants to do s something... Um, uh, one way, uh, I'm sorry, the team wants to do something one way and the intern is getting up and saying, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that this way because that's not the way GM does it. And some older, more experienced uh, engineer says, oh, I don't care if that's not the way GM did it then. We, we probably can, in fact, make it happen. I see this a lot in the sense that when we go out and we ask, say, I don't know, a machine, uh, a machine shop whether they, we, they could do something, we'll get the, the, the feedback that, oh, no, it's simply not possible. But what you're seeing is you're seeing a very limited, um, uh, a, a limited view of, 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 in this case, machining. And, in fact, there are other people who are going in very different directions who find out that, in fact, yes, in fact, uh, there is a way to machine this. It's just that it's not well known or something like that. So it's very important to understand that, that when you are going out and you, you're not yourself experienced but you're asking for information, it's quite possible you may have missed something and there is some other way to do that. And so I just want to make sure that people don't get knocked down too much by people saying, no, you can't do it, because it may still be possible. Um, details, details, details. Uh, again, um, CubeSats are, to a great extent, dramatically about details. Very small details make a very big difference. Got to sweat those details. So I just want to finish up with uh, a couple of ideas about uh, CubeSats as they're going right now. Um, do I have time? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me just touch on this one thing here. This notion of off-body deployed solar panels. 
Uh, generally speaking, we thought about CubeSets as being sort of these monolithic things that have things that glom to them. But now that we're doing uh, solar arrays that are deployed from the satellite, it really frees up the, the structural constraints of the CubeSat to be able to do a, a lot more than that. So I guess I'll finish up with that um, and take any questions.